Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this is uh, the prayer of Hannah. And where this comes in the story of what's been going on in all of uh, in all of Israel is they have gotten into the promised land. There's been a period of judges. And, um, and during this time, we have a woman who can't have a baby, and she goes and she prays for the baby, and God gives her a baby. And now she takes this baby, once he's weaned, to, back to the temple to give him over. And uh, it's a, the whole story uh, kind of tugs at your heartstrings. And yet, when she gives him away... Here is um, her prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, focusing on who God is and how he works and how she's seen this even evident in her own life. Uh, Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, we thank you that uh, you have not left us to just figure out who you are by what we see in creation, though you've certainly revealed yourself there. But, God, that you have also given us your word where you have revealed uh, who you are and the ways you work uh, throughout Scripture and most clearly in the person of Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us uh, today to hear your word, that we would know you better, that we would come to love and trust you more even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He, sets them with, he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Turning then to... Our gospel lesson, John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. We have uh, Jesus teaching. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. 
Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, this is not a um, Thanksgiving sermon, but we're going to talk about something a little different today, and that is, what do you do when you are in a situation where there don't seem to be any good options? When you're between a rock and a hard place, and it doesn't seem that there's anybody that's on your side, you're kind of alone in the situation between a rock and a hard place. And everywhere you look, there's no good option. Everywhere you look, there's no help. And everywhere you look, you can't even see any sign that God is with you in that moment. What do you do? Have you been there? This is um, the situation where we find Paul this week. And it's a weird passage. Because in this passage, we see Paul alone. We don't see groups of people praying for him. We don't see uh, miraculous intervention happening. We don't see God mentioned at all. We don't see Jesus mentioned at all in this passage. And so it's as though all the evidence of God being with Paul in this situation is gone, and what we do see before us are the Jewish people and the Roman people who are all being self-interested and not caring for Paul, not caring for justice, not caring about the things of God at all. So what do you do? Well, let's take a look at what it is that Paul does and what we might be able to learn from this as we face similar situations ourselves. This is Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. It says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. We're going to just pause a lot of words there. It's hard to follow the geography and that sort of thing. Paul has been, has been held in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast. It's actually north of Jerusalem, and yet it talks about people going uh, up to Jerusalem and down to Caesarea. And you're like, well, that's not the way we do maps <laughs> or the way we talk about it. But Jerusalem was always up. You always go up to Jerusalem no matter where else you're going, partly because it is on a hill, but for more theological reasons, 
because it is where the temple is, and you always go up to the temple. It's the highest place, kind of like the king's head is going to be higher than everything else. The temple, you always go up to Jerusalem no matter where you're coming from. You always go down from Jerusalem no matter where you're going. And so um, Paul is being held in Caesarea. The reason he's being held in Caesarea is because he had been in Jerusalem, and there was a plot against his life there where they said, hey, how about the Sanhedrin call him in and uh, he's being held by Roman guards, but what if the Jewish Sanhedrin calls him in, and while he's on his way, we'll kill him. We'll make sure he never makes it to Sanhedrin. The plot was found out, and so they he escort him by Roman guard all the way up to Caesarea on the coast, and that is where he's now being held. He's been there for a couple of years. The previous governor who is there didn't care. Uh, the previous governor was Felix, who cared more about himself than about Paul, who cared more about himself than about what was right and wrong. And so he kept Paul, even though there was no reason to hold him. He keeps him for two reasons, both personal reasons. <laughs> One, he was hoping that he would get a bribe. that Somebody would bribe him, that Paul would bribe him, so that uh, that way he could you know, financially gain by the situation. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And two, he kept him there as a favor to the Jewish people. So just playing politics, trying to make everybody happy. So both for uh, greed and for politics, he keeps Paul there even though there's no reason to hold him uh, legitimately, legally. But that's what was happening. Felix gets replaced. He's gone now. Festus is the guy who's in. And these are fun names, right? So Festus... (laughs) You like old westerns. Festus, anyway. It's a different guy, though, in case you're confused. The children here are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but Festus is here, and he, uh, he comes in, and he is apparently a better governor than Felix had been for most people, but in Paul's case, it turns out the same. Paul, uh, before Festus is going to find out that Festus doesn't really care either. So you see right here, Festus has come down from Caesarea. Or, no, sorry, you don't do that. You don't come down from there. He goes up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he meets with Jewish people. Now, he's the Roman who's going to be over this whole area. So he goes to this place. It's an important place. I'm going to get to know my constituents kind of thing. And they're like, hey, there's this guy, Paul, and we really want you to deal with him. And in fact, what we'd really like is for him to come from Caesarea to Jerusalem so that, uh, you know, you can hear his case here, so we can kill him. (laughs) Festus, though, doesn't care. He says, no, we're going to go ahead and do the case in in Caesarea. We're not going to do that in Jerusalem. Not because that's what's right, not because that's what's good, not as a way of protecting uh, justice or protecting Paul. Because it's convenient. Like, I'm already heading up to Caesarea, any, down to Caesarea anyway. <laughs> uh, going to Caesarea, Paul's already there. There's no reason to bring him to Jerusalem. So it's a matter of convenience. He's going to see, uh, have the case there. So he says, let some of the leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So, verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. Down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. 
I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. So there's the defense. It's pretty straightforward. Now, it's likely he said more than this, but this is the summary statement of what all his case was. But this is it. He says, I'm innocent. Now, the uh, kind of running <laughs> joke with, uh, with people in prison, at least on TV shows and movies, is that everybody there is innocent, right? <laughs> everybody says, oh, I didn't do it. I'm just here. But, um, but that is really the case with Paul. And so he says, I have not done the very things he's being charged with, speaking against, uh, doing anything against the law or against the temple or against Caesar. This is the first time the Caesar one has come up, but here it is. And so you think about what you've read of Paul's writings. You think about what you hear of him speaking, and you say, well, is, is this right? Has he done anything against the law or the temple or against Caesar? Do they have an actual case to make against him? I think it's a matter of perspective. Because from their perspective, you know, when they hear him talking about the law and it said, you know, saying that you don't have to be circumcised anymore. If you are a Gentile and you want to follow God, you don't have to follow all the law of the Old Testament. And the Jewish people say, oh my goodness, yes, you do have to follow the law. This Paul is teaching against the law. And yet, actually, if you look at Paul's life, he's still following the law. He's circumcised Timothy. It's an awkward day. But he circumcised Timothy to show everyone that he's still following the law. He takes a vow himself, uh, like a Nazarite vow, and he even pays for the purification rites of others in Jerusalem. Paul is still following the law. He is Jewish, and he's going to continue to follow the law. But he also is teaching that the law doesn't save anybody. And that was the difference. And so what he's teaching is, yes, follow the law, but don't place your hope in the law. Don't place your hope in following, in your ability to obey the law or to follow the law. Place your hope in Jesus. The law doesn't save, but Jesus does. The law teaches us how far short we fall and how much we need a Savior. And so this is where, you know, you could argue, and I guess they did, that Paul is teaching against the law, but Paul is saying, no, no, no. I'm teaching about the Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law. I'm upholding the law. In fact, I'm upholding the law higher than any of you all are. I'm just not putting my hope in it. And so from Paul's perspective, I'm not doing anything against the law. Not at all. But I'm trying to point to the one that the law has always been pointing to. Secondly, against the temple. Has he done anything against the temple? Well, again, kind of depends. Now, they spread a false rumor saying that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't do. But even still... Has he done anything different regarding the temple? Yeah. He has still been going to the temple. He went to the temple when he gets to Jerusalem. That's what he did. That's what he does. That's what Jewish people would do. You go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple. But he's also teaching that you don't have to go to the temple to meet with God. In fact, this is what we see happen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, is that when you see the, the fire and the wind that comes on the disciples at Pentecost, it's the same kind of event as what you see in the Old Testament at the temple when the presence of God is present at the temple. And now we have the presence of God present with the 
people. And so Paul later writes, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And so can people come to the temple still? Absolutely. But don't think that that's the only place that you meet with God. That now God meets with his people wherever they are. And that he does so through his spirit, which has gone out (laughs) from the temple and is going out through the whole world. And as the message of Jesus has gone forward throughout the book of Acts, we see evidence of the spirit of God present in all these different places. And so this is why when we talk today about the church, we're not talking about the church building. We're talking about the church that are the people. Now, uh, people sometimes get this confused. They hear this and they go, oh, right. So you don't have to go to a building. Therefore, we don't go to church worship services on Sunday morning, we'll go worship on a golf course because, hey, God's with me wherever I am, right? I, I have heard this many times. Here's the thing. On the one hand, that's true. <laughs> that it's not about coming to a building. The reason that we come to a building is not because God has said come to a building, but because the church is to do certain things that we can only do together. <laughs> and so if You do those things in your house, gathered together with other Christians. If you do them in a back basement in China, if you do them in the fanciest of all cathedrals, none of that matters. What matters is the people of God getting together to do the things that God has called them to do as the people of God. That's what it's about. Um, And that's why the golf course thing probably breaks down. But anyway... This is, this is where Paul, again, says, I haven't done anything against the temple. And people, you know, perspective-wise would see that and say, yeah, because you're saying you don't have to go to the temple anymore. <laughs> and Paul's saying, again, no, I'm pointing to the one that the temple has always been pointing to. And I'm showing what God has been doing through the temple uh, that has gotten us to this point. I am upholding what the temple has always been about. And I'm telling you that uh, something new is going on here. Uh, but I'm, he's not done anything against the temple. And a third against Caesar. This one is particularly weird. Do you know who the Caesar was at the time that uh, Paul is defending himself here? This had been the late 50s, probably 59 AD. This had been a guy by the name of Nero, actually. Nero. Anybody heard of him before? Nice guy, right? That's not his reputation. Um, And yet, Paul says he hasn't even done anything against Nero, (laughs) of all people. And this is is weird, because, again, matter of perspective. This is one of the things that they're trying to get Paul accused of, is, look, if it were just up to the Sanhedrin, just speaking against the temple, that's enough to get him killed. But the Romans... They don't care if anybody's been speaking against the temple. They don't care if anybody's been speaking against the law of Moses. That's not their thing. Caesar, that's their thing. So if we're going to get him killed by the Romans, we need to make sure that they think that Paul is against Caesar somehow. Now, has Paul been preaching that Jesus is Lord? Yes. (laughs) And what does that mean about Caesar? (laughs) I mean, Caesar's not Lord. That means that there is an authority that's higher even than Caesar, and that is Jesus. And, uh, and so you could make the case 
as I guess they were, that Paul is speaking against Caesar. But Paul is saying, no, I'm not. And in fact, Paul is, under, is in a tradition much like Daniel in the Old Testament. You read about Daniel under uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And here he is under a pagan ruler in a pagan empire. And yet, he's not speaking against Nebuchadnezzar. He's not working against him to get him overthrown and replaced by somebody else. He's serving under him. And as long as Nebuchadnezzar is saying to do things that God is saying to do, he says, okay, I'll do that. I'm not going to say no just because a pagan is telling me to do it. I'm going to say yes because it's still the right thing to do. And I'll do that. But one of the things that we read in Daniel multiple times is how sometimes that pagan king will then say to do things that Daniel says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because now that goes against what God is saying to do. And there is a higher authority here. And that is the one I'm going to follow. Paul is in the same tradition here. And so we see in Romans 13, he's saying to honor the emperor. Like, Nero, are you, are you serious? Are you, are you kidding me? We're supposed to honor Nero? Yeah, you are. Now, on the other hand, when he says to do things that as Christians we can't do, then you don't do those. And if he says, well, then I'll kill you, you say, well, then I guess that's what happens. But there are some lines that we do not cross. But as long as those aren't, those aren't the lines there, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not speaking against the Caesar. And so I'm, all I'm saying is there's a higher authority, and that is Jesus. And so uh, in those three things, you can see the case that they would have made, but you also can see how Paul, with a very clear conscience, can make his defense and say, I have done nothing wrong. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. There we go. So what happens? Verse 9. Festus, in wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you, go- are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, I am now standing. This is, okay, this is where he gets into the, what do you do? What do you do? He's made his defense. No one seems to care. The Jews want to kill him in Jerusalem. Uh, Festus doesn't care what happens to him as long as Festus can benefit some way. And so he says, look, how about you go ahead and go to Jerusalem? Paul knows what happens if he goes to Jerusalem. They will either kill him on the way or they'll kill him when he gets there. And so Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. So what does Paul do here? He actually... uh, invokes one of the rights he has as a Roman citizen to in a capital case where his life is on the line, he can actually appeal all the way to Rome and uh, to, to be tried there instead of in this local court. And so that's what ends up happening. Okay, we're going to send you on to Rome. Now we're going to find out the rest of that story and how that goes from here. Getting It's not an easy road either to get from Caesarea <laughs> to Rome. But Do you remember? No, before we get that. 
right now we're zoomed in on this one section of Paul's story. And said at the beginning, it looks like he's between a rock and a hard place, and it, you don't see God mentioned, you don't see Jesus mentioned, and it seems like every uh, bit of evidence you have of God's presence with him has vanished. So what do you do? Well, that's because we're zoomed in. And unfortunately, that's kind of the way we live our lives, is zoomed in on the present moment. But what you'll notice if you zoom out on Paul's story is you see that this is part of a larger story that starts in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. But even if you just ignore most of that and just go from the beginning of, beginning of Acts to the end of Acts, you'll see that Jesus said in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That this is where the message is going. And we see that Paul is one of the people that God is going to use. He, actually, Jesus says he's going to be my instrument. He's going to be my witness. And so we see Paul is going to be one of the people who is going to be going to the ends of the earth, and that's going to be in Rome. And so even though, if you zoom in on this, it doesn't look like God is at work. If you zoom out, by the time you get to the end of Acts, you say, oh my goodness. God was absolutely at work through all the twists and turns and uh, highs and lows and bright moments and dark moments, he was still there, he was still at work, and his purposes were still going forward. In a book called The Screwtape Letters, and I will tell you ahead of time, you got to follow me real close here because this is a very tricky book to quote because it is written... Uh, from the perspective of a demon writing to another demon, giving advice on how to keep people away from Jesus. And, uh, and so when you read it, everything is backwards. You know, the demons think that bad is good and good is bad. They think that Jesus is the enemy and that sort of thing. Okay. Here is, here is a part of one of these letters written from screw tape to the demon screw tape to the demon wormwood. And it says, uh, he, speaking of God, he wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, wormwood. Our cause, speaking of demons, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I think it's a brilliant line. Because what C.S. Lewis is tapping into there is how the followers of Jesus are to look like Jesus. And if you think about what happened on Good Friday, nobody there standing as witness to Jesus on the cross, thought that Jesus was being blessed by God. He was hanging on a tree, undergoing what was a sign of the curse of God. That what he had done had not gotten him blessing, but had gotten him cursed, had gotten him killed instead of life. Jesus from the cross even prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as you look at all the evidence of that day, everybody says, God has forsaken this man. But that's if you're zoomed in. If you zoom out, you see that's not the case. That is definitely not the case. And yet, when you're zoomed in, what you still see is Jesus 
on the cross. Going to the cross, staying on the cross, praying from the cross, forgiving from the cross. And so even in those moments where it seems like every trace of God has vanished, he stays faithful. He still obeys. And what C.S. Lewis is pointing out here is that to the, to the demons, it is really bad news when any Christian looks that much like Jesus. That in a similar situation, when we are between a rock and a hard place where there is no sign of God throughout, if we stay the course and trust that God is still at work, even when we can't see it, that is what terrifies the demons. <laughs> and that is what it means to actually walk by faith and not by sight. In the days to come, I don't know what we will face. I don't know what the zoomed-in story is going to look like for each of us. But I do know the zoomed-out story. And I know we can still walk by faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.